Shift is brought to you by Scheffler Group. Scheffler Group, we pioneer motion. As a manufacturer of precision components and systems for 70 plus years, Scheffler has become a leading global automotive and industrial supplier. Together with our customers, we drive forward-thinking technologies and develop the innovations that make motion and mobility more efficient, intelligent, and sustainable. To learn more, visit scheffler.us. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. Hi, Pete. And hi, everybody. This is Leslie Allen. Welcome to the show. Joining us on the show in just a few minutes is University of Virginia professor Peter Norton. Uh, He is the author of a new book called Autonorama, which really is a thought-provoking journey through the history and potential future of self-driving cars. But first, Leslie... Uh, I want to talk to you about electric vehicles, specifically uh, the the number of Super Bowl commercials that were touting EVs was was pretty incredible, was it not? Yeah, there were a lot of ads um, mentioning EVs, and and some of them were really pr- uh, pretty clever. I think it um, five of the top twenty Super Bowl commercials that were the most searched online during the game and after the event were focused on EVs. And there were ads from Polestar, from Kia, Nissan, Chevrolet, and BMW. I mean, they were all over the place. Did you have a favorite, Pete? Well, I did. I, I had two that were absolute favorites. And uh, I'm going to date myself as someone who's squarely a, a Generation Xer here because, and a New Jersey native. Uh, if that doesn't give it away, mm-hmm. I love the GM Sopranos commercial. Uh, and I loved the uh, the Austin Powers commercial as well. Like those two are my favorites, and they they hit at two of my favorite like all time movies and TV shows. So so congratulations to GM for those. Uh, how about you, Leslie? Anything that stood out to you? Well, I actually like Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Zeus in the BMW commercial. I mean, maybe it was a little silly, but. I, I thought that was pretty effective. It's a, it was a very memorable commercial, you know, where he's sort of zapping everything. <laughs> and um, I, I thought that was that was a clever um, image of electrification. I also thought the Polestar ad, which was more had more of a serious tone. I thought that Polestar ad was was really good, where they um, sort of threw a little shade at the other automakers and you know about why they're going into electrification. I mean they pretty much um, called out Tesla and called out Volkswagen, et cetera. So I thought that was uh, really good. Yes, I think they, they did, in fact, call out Volkswagen with like they were saying something to the effect of it wasn't Dieselgate uh, related, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so threw some major shade there. <laughs> yes. But anyway, it was pretty good. And I have, to be, I have to confess, I'm one of those people who watches the Super Bowl primarily for the commercials. <laughs> I mean, I know the game was also good, and I did watch the game. Um, but the, the I have to, I basically take my break during the game and come back for the <laughs> the commercials. Well, we, we would have been very complimentary. Uh, although this year, I'll, I'll say I enjoyed the commercials. I enjoyed the halftime show. Uh, it was really a good spectacle, and and uh, you know, a watershed moment for electric vehicles. I thought just the. The quantity and quality of the ads really pointed to where where the industry is going here in the short term. Yeah, they even snuck in, I believe, a um, a mock E during the pregame with um, the Holly Berry um, video. So, and it wasn't even marked, but of course, Ford noticed it. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Uh, well, if, if that was a watershed moment for electric vehicles and we're actually seeing this proliferation of them in the marketplace, um, you know, on the automated vehicle side of things, we always seem to be on the, uh, on, you know, the sort of close but, but not actually here time frame um, of, of widespread deployment. And that is something that Peter Norton, uh, author of Autonorama, uh, really is going to delve into here in our conversation. It's kind of this uh, 
this promise that automated vehicle technology is always on the horizon, always on the brink of, of you know, creating these widespread societal changes. Uh, he will tell you that we've been hearing the same story for, you know, almost 80 years now, and, and we're not quite there yet in the same way that we are with EVs. So um, maybe without further ado, let's go to our conversation with University of Virginia professor and author of Autonorama, Peter Norton. Peter, welcome to the podcast today, and, and thanks for making the time for us. Great to be here, Pete. You're an author and professor of history at the University of Virginia, uh, who's interested in transportation. Uh, maybe just to kick this off, uh, curious, where did that interest in transportation come from? Well, you know, it's a couple of different routes. One is a great amount among a lot of kids, maybe particularly boys, of liking vehicles and things that go, uh, and I had that as a child. Um, but also there was the uh, fact that I loved history, and then if you throw in the fact that uh, as a young adult who went for a number of years without a car, it became very obvious to me that uh, we designed a country where, you know, if you don't have a car, you're kind of a second-class citizen. And, I, you know, as a guy interested in history, I wanted to find out where that came from and uh, pulled at that thread and started to unravel a really big sweater. Yeah, you've made a career out of it at this point. Uh, you've written numerous books and papers. Uh, uh, let, me, let me interject and just say it's just two books. Just two books. Okay. Not, not numerous books, right? Multiple, I guess that would be two. At least two, right? <laughs> right. Uh, well, so the latest one is called Autonorama, uh, and it makes this argument that, you know, we've been enamored with autonomous or automated driving technology. We can kind of get into that nuance a little bit uh, for, for decades now. Uh, and one of your, the overriding points of, of this is that you, you make the case that always kind of staring at this horizon is, is problematic. Uh, why is that? Well, first, I want to compliment you on saying the title so well. I often have to correct people. It's Autonorama, like you said, uh, fusion of autonomous and Futurama, uh, something we can talk a little bit more about uh, later on. But the basic idea is that um, if you want to sell something that works, a tool that works, you know, show what it can do right now for somebody. But if you want to really sell, you know, an entire warehouse full of tools, um, then the way to go at that point is to talk about a more distant future that will make this expensive proposition worthwhile. And to do that, of course, you have to show a very attractive future. Um, it has to be credible, but it has to be also just breathtaking enough to enlist a kind of uh, commitment for the long haul. And there's a lot of variations on this, of course. I mean, the classic uh, technique of the uh, evangelical preacher is to promise you a future that's so attractive that you will, you know, get on the, uh, what they used to call the sawdust trail and, and, and become a true believer. Well, marketing inherited that technique and in no field of products did that technique go further than in the selling of cars and a driving future and almost since the beginning of uh, of cars themselves we've had a a vision of cars that drive themselves why why is that so persistent and attractive within the framework that you just laid out well, you know, it's funny because there have been a lot of people trying to sell the idea of cars that drive themselves. There has never been, even today, uh, a really big, obvious market for this. Now, of course, if you run Uber or something like that, it's attractive because now you don't have to pay your drivers. Or if you have uh, trucks, uh, you don't have to hire drivers. And so in those specific applications, the driverless element has a practical dollars and cents uh, attraction. But um, the idea of, you know, everybody going around in a car that's driving itself has been a sort of science fiction trope. It's been also um, a persistent kind of uh, goal of the 
tinkerer in the um, you know coming up with the latest technology to see if if they can meet this kind of a challenge. But as far as moving everybody around, you know, it's not actually ever been um, the idea with a big demand side to it. Um, now, on the supply side, in other words, people who want to sell this this uh, idea, there's so much to be sold that it's such an attractive idea for that reason, particularly if you're in the, the technology sector, the tech involved is so you know, enormous, or if you're just interested in collecting the data, you know, you could collect a lot of data if people in the car don't have to pay attention to the road and therefore can pay attention to entertainment or media or, or what have you. So um, it's not been, it's been a persistent idea, but it's not been an idea with a persistently big demand on the supply side, though it has its attractions, as well as its causes for anxiety because the the conventional automakers of course would like everyone to own their own car and a lot of the autonomous futures uh, are ones where the vehicles would be shared but the automakers want to be on the inside of that dilemma to make it fall out the way they would like it to fall out in your book you lay out these very four distinct eras of uh, autonomous vehicle development or, or automated vehicle development. Can you just walk us through those those four particular eras and and uh, and then perhaps right after that we can talk about some of the commonalities that that carry over from uh, from one era to another. Right. So I, I mentioned a little earlier the idea that if you want to sell a lot more than just one vehicle, you have to sell a future where everybody needs uh, vehicles and where the vehicles are not just special purpose transport tools, but all purpose transport solutions. And that required doing more than saying, hey, look at this amazing, attractive car that you know is reliable and so on. It meant, hey, look at this future where everybody has a car and where cars are going everywhere. Now that's a future that's hard to persuade people as possible. So to make it credible you have to connect it with state-of-the-art technology because that has the effect of making even the incredible seem believable and in um, the selling of uh, a car dependent future there have been four generations of this and the fact that the current generation looks so much like the past generations is what inspired me to write the book so Back in the 1930s, General Motors was asking itself, how could they sell much more cars than, you know, you know one car for every two families, which is about where the, the target was at that time. And one way to do that was to present a future where everybody's driving everywhere for any transport purpose without delay, uh, without crashing, uh, and having a free parking space when they get to their destination. That's, that was their utopia. They presented that as the city of the future. That is, at that time, that meant the city of 1960, because we're talking about circa 1939 to 40. They presented the, the city of 1960 in an enormous model. Uh, you know, it would occupy most of a football field. It was called um, Futurama which was a fusion of the words future and diorama. And that was the first generation. And what was going to make this credible was the state-of-the-art technology of 1939, which included radar, uh, vacuum tube electronics more generally. And also, it's easy to forget that the grade-separated, divided, limited-access highway was state-of-the-art technology, too, with the reinforced concrete in particular was, was the vision of this. So that, that kind of state-of-the-art technology was supposed to make this happen. And what made it believable was people could see it happening in this giant model at the New York World's Fair, 1939 and 1940 in the summers. It was by far the most popular exhibit. They also filmed it so all of America could see it. And it was, you know, it's striking to me that people saw this city, this wonder city of the future in 1939, which was the same year they were seeing the Emerald City in the Judy Garland movie, Wizard of Oz. In both cases, it was a 
very attractive, but also kind of a sham uh, version of the future. Um, it's interesting that in the book, The Wizard of Oz, the Emerald City is actually just plaster, and it looks like emeralds because you were required to wear green glasses. It's a key little element in the book that's missing in the film. Well, uh, to, to fast forward and show how this is generational, um, obviously that vision did not work out as depicted. Yeah, they built a lot of highways, but it was by far not a driving paradise. There was traffic jams, there was massive uh, fatalities from collisions. Cities were being eviscerated for parking. There was a lot of criticism. And that meant you have to resell the idea. So in 1964, there was a second Futurama called Futurama 2 by General Motors. Uh, Ford had a, uh, a, a similar mock-up in um, New York, same place as the first Futurama. And now the problem is once you've sold this vision once and it didn't work, why is anyone supposed to believe you? And the thing that makes that credibility possible is connecting the vision to the new state-of-the-art technology, whatever that is. So in 64, that was above all the transistor, but also the space age technology, the jet age technology of that era. And you don't really have to explain exactly how transistors or jets or anything like that's going to make this work. You just have to connect the two and then show this future. So they showed the city of the future again, and it looked amazing. Once again, there was skepticism afterwards, uh, a prolonged credibility gap through the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s, where people just aren't accepting these visions very easily. But a new generation of technology in the 80s, exemplified by the personal computer, by Apple, um, by the microprocessor above all, which was making those things small and powerful at the same time and affordable too. And that sustained a third Futurama. Now, it, they never called the third generation Futurama 3, maybe because both of the first two had ultimately been disappointments. But in Futurama 3, you have everything that was in Futurama 1 and 2, state-of-the-art technology being used to present a vision of the future where driving will be problem-free, no congestion, no crashes, etc. This time, the technology, we're talking now mostly late 80s through the 90s, is um, the, uh, the technology of, uh, of that era is uh, uh, the technology that had been developed, not just for personal computing, but also for the Pentagon, this was coming out of the Cold War. The military contractors were very alarmed that with perestroika and fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Union, they were like, oh no, who are we going to sell this incredibly expensive stuff to? And some of the contractors actually said, well, we're going to use this technology that we have been using to win the Cold War. We're going to use it to win the war on congestion. They actually marketed it that way. And they had an amazing opportunity to show off so-called smart systems through the Gulf War, particularly in January of 91, when there was the massive air campaign against Iraq. TV news, particularly CNN, was full of press conferences where you could see the uh, cameras right mounted right on the um, smart munitions that would broad or transmit back signals showing you the target being precisely hit. Even though that accounted for only about 8% of the munitions, that was the attention-getting fraction. And you see this word smart, which began from munitions leading right into um, the smart highways, which cost billions of dollars to develop, were only a big disappointment. There was a demonstration in 97 of what they could do. It was not very impressive. Um, and now I'm just proposing that we've been on the fourth generation of this. No one's calling it Futurama 4 but I think we could, and this time it's the autonomous technology that's supposed to make this work, hence the name Autonorama for Futurama and Autonomous. Is, is there an argument to be made here today, early 2022? We have, we have the same like, state-of-the-art technology in LiDAR, uh, camera vision, uh, or computer vision, and uh, we have computing power, 
we do have Waymo running robo taxis in Arizona. A lot of Chinese companies have deployed. So, so is there an argument to be made that this is finally, finally here real after all these years? Well, first of all, that is, of course, the argument that, yeah, okay, maybe the uh, previous generations didn't work, but hey, they didn't have LiDAR. They didn't have 5G. They didn't have the technology that we have. And uh, therefore, it's unfair to compare them. That, that's a, a very fair counter-argument. Um, uh, my reply to that is, first of all, even the technology that did work in the past could not deliver what, what was promised. For example, grade-separated, divided, limited-access highways really do work beautifully at what they're made to do but they don't make like a city congestion free simply because you can't move cars at that level of density without having jams. Well, so that what that means is the divided highway is a great thing and a great idea for what it is good at, but because it's so impressive, that doesn't mean it can do everything. And so what I've learned to say is amazing technology does not make car dependency work. The technology really is amazing. I'm not arguing that the technology is not amazing. What I'm arguing is that technology, no matter how amazing it is, can only do what that technology is useful for. It can't make everything possible. And so what um, I'm trying to argue is that as amazing as the technology connected with automated and autonomous vehicles is, it does not make a world where everyone's going around in a in a car of some kind work it's and by work i mean make it sustainable make it affordable make it inclusive for most people make it safe and efficient we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with peter norton right after this word from our sponsor scheffler group we pioneer motion there's no denying the future of mobility is changing and with that, so are the needs of manufacturers. Only a fundamental transformation of mobility and energy systems will lead to a sustainable and environmentally compatible future. At Scheffler, we embrace transformation and explore the future, understanding that insight and innovation are key to adapting to the challenges facing our world and our customers. As a global automotive supplier that manufactures precision components and systems, we've taken advantage of our expertise in mechanical components, manufacturing processes, and winding technologies, plus our knowledge of systems to mass-produce exciting, advanced, and future-ready products. The result is an extensive portfolio for electrification and autonomous driving technologies for both passenger cars and commercial vehicles all designed with high vertical integration, modularity, and scalability in mind. Together with our customers, Scheffler drives forward-thinking technologies and develops the innovations that make motion and mobility more efficient, intelligent, and sustainable. To learn more, visit scheffler.us. Now back to our conversation with Peter Norton. It's interesting that, you know, kind of going back to the 1930s, there's this idea that uh, cars are, are going to move toward zero crashes, zero emissions, zero congestion, which you just uh, discussed. And I thought one of the most uh, insightful parts about reading your book was that, you know, that's going back decades and that, that could have been ripped from today's headlines. It, it's the same story uh, repackaged. That's exactly right. In fact, I mean, a big part of why I, I wrote the book, which was not a book I ever expected to write. I'm a historian, and this book is really motivated by my interest in the future and, and in the present. But uh, it is the same message. Now, the zero emissions part that we hear a lot today was relatively late comer. We, we do see that cropping up in Futurama 3, the smart highways era. But, you know, we, the, the climate change, the climate emergency was really not. Um, a important consideration until the end of the 20th century, and therefore um, it was not a component of Futurama's one and two. But zero crashes and zero congestion were definitely part 
of even the first and the second Futuramas. And the, it, what was making that credible, supposedly, as far back as the 30s, was the divided highway. A very interesting error, maybe it was intentional, I, I, I don't know, in the estimate of what those would deliver for us is the same error we're making today. So when they introduced divided highways, they figured out all the crashes you can't have on them. Like you don't have intersection crashes because there are no intersections. You don't have pedestrians getting because no pedestrians. Um, you don't generally have side-on collisions because etc. And you don't typically have head-on collisions because of the median strip. So they subtracted all of those things out and they came to the conclusion that they were going to eliminate at least 98% of all fatalities on highways. Um, sometimes it was 98% of all crashes, it depends on the source. So what's interesting there is, of course, they subtracted all the crashes you don't get, but then they didn't add back in all the new kinds of crashes you do get, right? Like hitting an abutment, like going off the road, like rear-ending somebody, etc. Um, many of them exacerbated by the higher speeds, of course. Now, that's a very elementary error, and it helps explain why divided highways are safer, but only, you know, nothing like as much safer as they were supposed to be. We're making exactly the same mistake, probably that's influenced by the fact that all the companies want to sell this stuff too. In other words, they subtract all the human errors that autonomous vehicles can't make because they don't get sleepy, they don't get drunk, they don't get impatient, they don't look at their phones and so on. But they don't add in all the new kinds of errors that robotic drivers would definitely add back into the equation. That is interesting. I mean, we always hear about the promise of safety in an autonomous era, and it's, it's obviously not yet proven. But, but to your point about the promises of the past, uh, I thought it was really revealing that uh, in 1937, when a lot of these uh, you know, ideas of the separated highway or elevated highway were being made, uh, there were 37,817 traffic deaths that year. Uh, the latest for which we have a full uh, year of data is 2020, and the number is 38,680. So almost identical here uh, as these same discussions are are happening, uh, you know, not quite a century later. Right, and and Pete, you would be the first to say that, of course, that does mean that each mile driven is safer, but the total toll is certainly constant. And I would actually disagree with to say it's only making each mile safer that we should measure, because of course, in fact, um, if we have a system that requires people to drive more where they're by increasing their exposure. And I think actually in 2022, it's far more common for people to feel like they have to drive and drive a lot. And therefore, um, it's not only a question of how safe each mile is, but also of how many miles you have to drive. One of the points you make in Autonorama is that, uh, and it seems like maybe it's a pet peeve of yours, but uh, it seems like if, if only we could educate people about the benefits, uh, there's this constant theme of a need for education that you uh, at one point say is akin to Purdue Pharma saying, if, you know, essentially like if only we could educate people on the benefits of OxyContin. Uh, is the auto tech industry, if that's what we want to call it, making this, this mistake or, or maybe it's not a mistake, but it, you know, an intentional idea of education is all we need to to solve all the, the friction here. Yeah, so I'm an educator. I mean, my job is to, to teach class and it disturbs me to hear the word education used when the intention is to impart a preconceived conclusion. Uh, when that's the goal, then of course we have a word for that. Uh, the word is indoctrination, not education. Education, you can't know in advance what, what the conclusion is gonna be because that's not how education works. Now, um, the, the OxyContin comparison is obviously a hot one uh, because of the toll of uh, opioids, but I think it's a completely fair one. I mean, maybe fair to a level of detail that, that would surprise a lot of people because 
uh, when Purdue Pharma came up with this formulation, they then found some data that they needed to show that it was safer. And that data was that only 1% of patients got addicted. I think that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that was uh, a, a number that was the result of a study in which the patient was hospitalized and confined to bed and had no access to any medication except the medication as administered on a case-by-case, dose-by-dose basis, each dosage being the product of a, of a deliberation by caregivers. Um, and in that situation, 1% got addicted. Well, that 1% number, of course, quickly got used by Purdue Pharma to say this product is not addictive. And our job is to educate physicians uh, that this product is not addictive, and we will use that 1% number. Interestingly, promoters of autonomous and highly automated vehicles have a percent number they like to use too. It's the famous 94% number. This too is based on some research under specific circumstances, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration data. And exactly the same way, the data got misrepresented as something that it really isn't. Even in the original report, um, the, the 94%, and instantly this 94% number is the, is the, the uh, number that says that 94% of collisions are due to human error. Now, in the original report, it cautions that this doesn't mean that it's always the driver's fault. For example, the driver may have uh, responded to a, a road design issue uh, that could have been dealt with with the road design or something like that. But um, as Phil Copeman of uh, Carnegie Mellon has pointed out in a nice blog post about this, and I think David Zipper, a journalist, pointed this out a little later as well, that number became not uh, a sort of a measure of something, but rather a tool to use to s- supposedly educate people that if you're resisting autonomous vehicles, then you're the problem. You're standing in the way of saving lives. You are, in effect, making yourself responsible in part for at least some of that 37, 38,000 uh, fatality list. So I think the comparison is a fair one. I mean, you and I met at a, at a conference where one of the messages from one of the uh, organizations speaking there was we have to educate the public, which by implication is emotionally anxious and irrationally resistant to this. Uh, I think you and I both heard a, a sociologist from um, University College London say, uh, you know, Maybe instead of uh, educating people, you should start listening to them a little bit, you know, and I found that uh, that, that gave, gave me a feeling like maybe I could speak up, frankly, too. That was a that was very interesting conference, and I think that was the Automated Vehicle Symposium in Orlando circa 2019, maybe? It was. It was July 2019, and that sociologist was Jack Stilgo. That's right. That's right. Um, so fast forward to, to present day, uh, and, and picking up on that theme of that 94% figure you just mentioned, uh, it's really been interesting in recent weeks and months. Uh, I think we've seen both the National Transportation Safety Board and, and maybe finally the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation uh, take, take some of the air out of that 94% figure, to say the least, and or push back against it in the case of the NTSB. Um, both those agencies have, have advocated now for something called a safe systems approach to traffic safety. Uh, and I'm wondering if you specifically see this as, as an improvement in terms of safety and, and big picture, does it kind of help move the needle away from what you've termed car dependency? So it could mean those things. So the safe systems approach can be valuable or it can even be harmful depending on what we include within that term system, right? So does the system include, for example, that we have made it uh, in the society we live in such that a lot of people to get affordable housing have to live, you know, 40 miles from their work location and drive that distance every day because in effect our default 
affordable housing policy has been to give people subsidized highways to use to get to an affordable place to live rather than help them have affordable housing in town, which is incidentally wouldn't take some kind of big socialist program. It would just take letting an apartment house open up in a single family residence zoned uh, neighborhood. That, that could be an affordable housing policy where people wouldn't have to drive so much. So what I'm getting at is it's part of the system that this person who's making a, a, a barely living wage has to drive half an hour to work. Um, and if we recognize that that's a part of the system we have some control over through policy, such that people can drive less and thereby be less exposed to hazards on the road, then this, a safe systems approach can be a great benefit. So far, I find that the safe systems approach tends to still define system rather narrowly. I mean, I would argue that we've had a safe systems approach since the beginning of traffic safety, which goes back over 100 years, and that the difficulty has always been what do we count as within the system and what do we exclude from the system? You know, a hundred years ago, it was an important part of the system that a person walking on foot, including a child, be able to cross the street safely. We then dropped that out of the system and thereby made it more dangerous for those people. So uh, it's not like we've come up with the safe systems approach for the first time. It's just that we've got a, a new name for an old a way of looking at safety. Speaking of pedestrians in names, uh, you seem to really hate the phrase vulnerable road user. Uh, why, why is that and, uh, and how should we reconsider um, pedestrians, bicyclists, and others who are not in a car within the traffic system? Well, Pete, let me first point out that it's obvious that writing a book and finishing it is a, is a big job. And you've actually sort of implicitly identified the thing that can make it happen. Namely, think about what really annoys you. And that can give you the energy you need to finish a book. So one is calling indoctrination education annoys me as an educator. Another is calling a pedestrian or a bicyclist a so-called vulnerable road user bothers me too. And I think it actually is important because it tells us something about the system that is being imagined here. And, you know, what's a good remedy and what's a bad remedy is totally dependent on how you define the system. So to get finally to your question, um, if I walk to a shop uh, or ride my bike to a destination of some kind, and I'm defined as a vulnerable road user, then the task um, of the authorities, the experts, the policymakers becomes one of sort of protecting me um, and yet at the same time not really um, thinking of me as the vehicle, you know, that the motor vehicle is. In other words, I'm not as, uh, I'm not equal. Um, it's like, what's that line from Orwell from Animal Farm? Uh, everyone's equal, but some are more equal than others. And I feel like I'm the one getting excluded at that point because I'm a vulnerable road user. I need to sort of be protected so that the real road users can get to where they really need to go. So I think if there were real parity, you know, a real sort of fair fairness in the application of these terms, and there's a lot of terms that I think are very loaded, uh, but here's one of them then if we were to call a pedestrian or a cyclist a vulnerable road user, we would have to call the motorist a menacing road user. Because in both cases, the action is accurate, but also kind of judgmental. So if we're not going to call motorists uh, menacing road users, then uh, I think that makes pedestrians and cyclists things like emissions-free road users, uh, high-efficiency high road users, undemanding road users, safe road users in the sense that the cyclist isn't going to kill anybody no matter how bad they cycle, except maybe themselves. Same thing with the pedestrian. And if our authorities and policymakers and experts are using the term vulnerable road user, well, this sets up a mental framework that 
perpetuates that secondary citizen status of the cyclist or the pedestrian. Peter, we have a new, relatively new infrastructure bill passed last fall uh, that that provides a lot of funding for surface transportation and uh, transportation in general. I'm curious if you see see that bill. Uh, does it just kind of repeat the car dependent past, or does it does it make for uh, you know a, a new environment where where other modes kind of get better treatment than they have in the past? Well, it's interesting that the, the typical political solution to a problem like this is to make gestures toward the new demands while also meeting all the old ones. And so the gestures in this bill really are unprecedented. There are some extraordinary things, maybe the most um, sort of groundbreaking or revolutionary almost, if I could use that term, is the uh, idea even that some urban highway removals are warranted because of the historic inequities that they uh, re both reflected and enforced. But the money that ultimately ended up in that particular category is so small that it's really not more than a gesture. But gestures do matter. Um, you know, the fact that that's a gesture that was inconceivable just a decade or two ago means it, it does matter, it's significant. Of course, at this very same time, we still have more funding for roads, expanding road capacity. We still define traffic congestion as delay for drivers, which I think is a really perverse way to define our problem. Since after all, drivers cause the congestion. Uh, why is it then that we treat the loss of time that a driver incurs as a public responsibility to relieve it? That, that the economics that 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 releases or unleashes are, are pretty perverse and self-destructive. So the bill, I mean, that, that's a long answer. The short answer is that the bill has some impressive and noteworthy gestures, but it's substantially more of the same. All right. You, know, you mentioned highway removal, and uh, it brought me back to a question I wanted to ask you a few minutes ago uh, when we were talking about cities, I'm, I'm curious if you put your historian hat on, why did cities allow for interstates to be, you know, why, why did they allow their neighborhoods to be plowed up and these interstates put through that, that very quickly sucked their tax base out to the suburbs? Like, why was there not a, a city level revolt against this? Well, of course, ultimately there was city level revolts, um, by the mid 60s in particular and into the 70s, it was the era of the freeway revolts and really a lot of these projects were stopped, at least those projects that were going to uh, intrude themselves upon well-resourced, politically well-connected and typically white communities. Um, but your, the question's a good one still because of course it took years before that kind of uh, resistance got strong enough to actually matter and it doesn't explain why anyone ever thought it was a good idea to do this in the first place. Now here's where I have to say um, I I'm continue to of course work as a historian on this and I'm working on a project now that's looking almost exactly at that question and the typical answers that we hear I think are dead wrong. The typical answers we hear are well this was 1950s engineering mentality of course the engineers were thinking this was a good idea they couldn't really know in advance what the full consequences would be um, our values have changed um, you know but according to the conventional wisdom of the 50s this was a good idea and even most cities welcomed it and i think that that's an incredibly misleading thesis. It's not that it's dead wrong. There's a lot of validity to it, but it misses so much. Um, what I find actually happening, first of all, is that a lot of engineers who were not part of the constellation of industries with a lot of money at stake in this were actually vocally questioning as early as the 40s, vocally questioning the idea that you would ever want to put like a freeway through a city. You know, that you. I mean, where are you going to put all the cars? Uh, people, engineers were making this, this kind of a caution. Um, also, uh, the people selling 
this vision of um, you know expressways as the thing you have to do to keep a city vibrant were typically industry people who who often got message out through engineers that worked through organizations that they funded. Um, but um, th- in, in effect, it was like Purdue Pharma um, working through physicians and trying to convince the physicians to, to work for them and, and to spread their message. And um, it would be easy to forget now that a lot of physicians questioned this. By the same token, a lot of engineers uh, questioned this. So did a lot of city leaders. Now, the people pushing this agenda were very skillful and they pursued every path. Um, There won't be time to review them all, but one of the more significant ones is that they took advantage of uh, the housing issues of the 40s and 50s to argue that, you know, this is is how we get these freeways through. Um, Most people have heard about urban renewal, typically uh, or especially under the, the Housing Act of 1949. This was supposed to supply affordable housing. It was supposed to do it by clearing out so-called slums, most of which were just the affordable housing that people could afford, replacing them with subsidized um, low-rent housing projects. And the tools that were used to so-called clear those so-called slums, the legal tools that the uh, Housing Act of 1949 gave to cities and states to deploy in their cities, those tools were quickly uh, seized upon by the people who wanted to sell roads and sell cars to say, look, if you really care about economic vitality of your cities, when you clear out those sums, don't just forget about the low-cost housing, put in parking and put in expressways, make the parking free. I mean, There was a guy named Richard Steiner who ran the Urban Renewal Office of the Federal Housing Administration in the 50s, who said, yeah, affordable housing, that'll kind of happen anyway. What we should really do is put in expressways. All right, Peter, our time is running short. I have one last question for you that maybe combines a lot of the the themes that we've talked about. Um, Self-driving is not the only utopia that, uh, that is on the horizon right now. There's a lot of talk about Elon Musk's boring tunnel going uh, below ground. We have a lot of talk about flying taxis taking, uh, you know, carrying people away from the, the surface level streets. Uh, I'm wondering if that, if both of those are just, uh, you know, shiny new objects on the, it's funny to think of tunnels as a, <laughs> as a shiny new object perhaps, but, but Elon's uh, put that framework around it. Um, so, it, are those just, you know, more of the same, you know, far-fetched utopias or, or is there something to this idea of taking transportation, motorized transportation above and below the surface level and leaving the surface level to pedestrians, bicyclists, and, uh, and others? Elon Musk is a great person to choose because he demonstrates by his personal example that Autonorama is much more about salesmanship, about marketing, about showmanship, really, than it is about, say, uh, policy or engineering know-how or good sense. Um, you know, the, the idea of tunnels in which passenger cars going, you know, one car at a time is going to solve your problems is laughably absurd. And, you know, this is not me going out on a limb. This is almost every in-person looks at it, which is the same conclusion. If you want to move people efficiently in tunnels, well, just go to New York and ride the subway. You're going to see some real throughput um, there. Um, I forget if it was Musk or someone else who actually said, uh, why don't you take the subway cars out and put in automobiles? And of course, it's like you can't begin to wrap your mind around this. So um, to answer your question, yes, I think this is all showmanship. This is not engineering. This is not transportation problem solving. Um, it's distracting. Um, showmanship at its best is innocuous. It's harmless. It, you can disregard it. And a lot of people will say to me, why, why are you talking about the marketing, uh, Norton? Why don't you talk about you know the engineering? Because that's what's really going to matter. And my view is, no, it's, it's the marketing that matters. It's the marketing that gave us the opioid epidemic. Uh, it's, it's 
marketing that gets us into trouble. It was marketing that turned DDT from a useful chemical pesticide into an affliction uh, of great environmental destructiveness. It's, it's the marketing that really makes people go. I mean, why else would corporations spend so much on it? So, yeah, I think we need to watch out for the distraction, not be distracted, um, sort of pull back the curtain uh, so we can see the uh, man operating the machine in the palace in the Emerald City, to use that metaphor, or that the emperor has no clothes, to use uh, the other one. Um, and when that happens, then finally we can shift the question from, and this is crucial, shift it from what does technology have in store for us, which is how this gets presented to us typically, into what do we, the citizens of this supposedly representative democracy, want. And once we know what that is, let's enlist technology and engineering to help us get that to that goal. Well, Pete, that was another great conversation with Peter Norton. I can't wait to get a hold of that book, Otanorama. Really, uh, really interesting. And there's this whole, whole history of uh, promises over automated vehicle technology that he really uh, delves into and presents. And it's kind of compelling, a compelling argument that every 20 years or so, we're, we're on the same cusp and asking the same questions and having these same hopes and promises about what autonomous vehicles might do for, for safety. And speaking of safety, Pete, can you give us a preview about next week's show? Yes, absolutely, Leslie. Uh, next week, we'll be talking to Robert Malloy. He's the director of the Office of Highway Safety at the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, a range of safety technologies that the board has examined and explored in recent years. And uh, I think it's gonna be another great show. But, but that is it for today. Uh, thank you to our producer, Josh Freed, and to our listeners for uh, tuning in today. We will see you next week. <laughs>